Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Back. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. Welcome back. <laughs> thank you. How you doing? Well, do you know where you're welcoming, welcoming me back from? At the, uh, it's not a week ago, I, I didn't. Uh, yes. But yeah. I, I, I took off last week. Thank you to Brandon Green for, uh, for, for hanging out with, you, with, with Tyler, mm-hmm. for babysitting Tyler while I was gone. Uh-huh. Um, uh, two weeks ago, I said I was going on vacation. I was all set to go to Berlin with my wife. We had planned it for five months. Mm-hmm. And the night before we were to leave, we went to check in at airberlin.com or whatever uh, for our flight and it didn't exist anymore because Air Berlin has gone bankrupt and canceled like all their long haul flights and so and because they're bankrupt we don't get our money back Um, and so after five months of planning we were not able to go to Berlin Um, it's crazy and like I was bummed at first I still am bummed about it but I also want to make it clear that I am you know uh, I am privileged enough that Natalie and I were able to sort of uh, 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 scrap for uh, what, what, what a scramble, scrounge, scramble and scrounge, and, and we came up with another vacation. We went to New Orleans mm-hmm. last minute, which is our favorite city in the country. We have friends there. It's like our fifth time going to New Orleans, so it ended up being fun. So I'm I'm back from New Orleans. I survived a hurricane there. <laughs> that was the way, yeah. So I went from <laughs> I just couldn't could not catch a break. Um, but again privileged white man yeah. i'm okay uh, you're gonna make it yeah we'll we're, we'll be just fine we'll make it to berlin i'm sure uh but anyway that was the that's that's what happened to me boy um i guess listeners heard what happened to me i just talked to my buddy brandon for a while yeah yeah it wasn't that as not so dramatic though yeah so uh yeah i'm back all right and you're better than ever as uh as 90s toy commercials would say uh-huh yeah, and anytime it's personal. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, New Orleans uh, brought you know gave me life, brought me back to life. Sure, uh, got to get them beignets mm. right off the bat. Of course, yeah, of course. All right, as a as a consolation prize because you couldn't get uh, strudel. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get that strudel. Right? So I guess I'll go with these as well. Um, okay, let's pay some bills. Absolutely. So, David and listener, this episode is brought to you. By Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi is The Driller Killer, directed by provocateur Abel Ferreira. Uh, a mosaic of genres, including the punk concert movie, the sex comedy, and the avant-garde mood piece, The Driller Killer is Described by movie as a nearly uncategorizable uh, horror film, which I kind of I love that even they're just are just throwing up their hands and saying like, look, I don't know. Um, but uh, so yeah, you can check that out along with uh, a number of other uh, horror movies, including uh, Rabid and uh, Night of the Living Dead is there. Uh, and there is a uh, special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash battleship to redeem now. Or you can go to battleshippretension.com and click on the uh, the movie ad on the left-hand side of the page. Honestly, it's what we'd prefer. That is what I would prefer, yes. Uh, you can also. I also want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Uh, tweakedaudio.com, if you don't know, is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives uh, to listen to, say, Tom Petty. Listen to a lot of Tom Petty mm-hmm. through my tweakedaudio.com earbuds lately. Uh, rest in peace, Tom Petty. Um, uh, Tom Petty in your ears and tears in your eyes. Yeah. Also listen to the new Primitive Man album. Very good. I don't know um, what that is. <laughs> anyway, that's what I listened to today. Uh, tweakedaudio.com. Uh, they're available. Uh, they sound, look great, sound great. They're available at a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code, because you're cool, because you know us, because we vouch for you, if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So you, you can go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension at checkout, or you can just click on the uh, banner ad on the left-hand side of the battleshippretension.com website. That's right. what we so yeah. tweakedaudio.com offer code pretension Whew. getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking what's your secret begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door treatment costs thousands less than braces plus they offer flexible financing accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes? Let's get into it, shall we? All right. So, this past uh, th- this past June, I went, as I do every year, uh, to the L.A. Film Fest. It's uh, something that I'm always... Los uh, Angeles Film Festival. Right, for those who aren't local. Exactly. That's what it stands for. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I'm always excited to, to go. I always see a lot of uh, uh, cool stuff. And uh, one of my favorite things that I saw this year was a movie called Never Here. Mm-hmm. And I uh, wrote a review, and the director was so nice that she re- reached out to me and told me uh, what a nice review, which is much better than the other thing, which has also happened to me, which is a director emailing me about a movie that I didn't like. Um, uh, I also asked that person to be on the show, and he just did, he just did, did, ignored me. When did, um, when did that happen? This was years ago. Uh, and yeah, I, mean, I was new, kind of new to writing reviews, and... and I still don't think the movie's very good, the movie in question, but in his defense, it probably wasn't the best written review uh, that I've ever written. Um, But he didn't want to come on the show and talk about it. Uh, But this person was like, yeah, I'll be there. The movie's coming out. Let's come on. Let's talk about the movie. Let's talk about whatever the hell we usually talk about on Battleship Attention. So the director of Never Here, Camille Toman. Hello, hello. Thank you for coming. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. I don't think I quite remember that that was the story. That, uh, that, well, it's You know what, ago. David, from now on, okay. let's give only positive reviews. <laughs> Problem solved. That will yeah. really bump you'll, our you'll numbers. Be up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'll be very popular. Yeah. You'll be very popular with the filmmakers, I can promise you. Uh, it won't backfire. Yeah. Um, I did. This is, has nothing. Sorry, well, Camille, I'll ask you questions. There's something else that happened recent, recently to me, uh, a movie that I saw recently, I, I wrote a negative review of. And uh, that turns out the director and I have a mutual friend and I was at a party a while after and I was like I want to go say hi to your friend but you know I wrote a bad review of of his movie and he was like ah it's fine and I was like yeah he probably didn't read it and George was like oh no he read it (laughs) why did you want to say hi if you didn't like his movie Um, he's made other movies that I liked oh there we go he just yeah made one I didn't gave it a bad review they can't all be winners David that's true that's true true. I'm Um, not safe (laughs) <laughs> right. My next yeah, film is not safe. <laughs> I won't get too comfortable. <laughs> um, so let's start, uh, before we get to know you, tell us about Never Here and when and where people can see it. Never Here opens on October 20th in theaters in L.A., New York, uh, Chicago, Cleveland, Houston, Dallas, Tampa. Oh, gosh. And I think couple other cities philadelphia philadelphia wait really <laughs> thank you yes guess. philadelphia oh. okay let me try absolutely Anchorage. no no damn it no boise no no <laughs> i think that might it's, it opens in 10 cities okay. nationwide october 20th to 26th and and you can also get it on demand mm-hmm. and on you know google play itunes all that stuff direct tv and then we also will be available on stars starting on oh, cool. february 2018 okay in starting in that's a february. pretty nice rollout thank you like that's it's very it's it's very exciting i guess i just naturally assume that if someone's going to be on our show they're not, they're not they don't have much going on yeah tyler hasn't seen the movie he assumed you were four-walling a theater no no no, no, no nothing nothing like that especially once i started looking it up and i saw the i saw the cast and all that it was very exciting but uh yeah oh wow oh, this is great cool um, great thanks yeah. for being on the show no problem this is my first podcast you guys really oh exciting. yeah okay well right. we got to represent know, podcasts we're all well around here. i think the uh, ship is sailed. yeah that's probably true. um <laughs> Uh, uh, I was about to say something about uh, yeah. I, I definitely recommend people in those cities check it out or check it out on, on VOD. Demand, yeah. yeah, VOD. Yeah, don't wait for stars because don't probably, wait for stars. It'll probably be cropped to one seven eight, right? When it's on it stars, it could. It poss- I you know, I have to find that out. And yeah, I think Possible. they'll probably make you yeah. do that. Yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah, so yeah, don't yeah see it before it gets to stars. Um, yeah, I mean, good for stars for picking it up and everything, but you know, <laughs> don't be an asshole. Yeah, go see it in the movie. On, it's twenty seventeen. Uh, premium cable networks stop cropping your movies that's probably yeah that is you know true. Mm-hmm. So, it's, it's ridiculous <laughs> anyway anyway now that but also thank you stars yeah. thank you very much stars <laughs> for being awesome and for buying our movie I, I do love the love the stars network and I'm so happy to be represented yeah. on it for real do you watch Outlander you know one of my best friends is on Outlander yeah mm. Tobias his last name is actually pronounced Mingus Tobias Mingus but it looks like Menzies 
with uh-huh. Tobias Menzies. He plays the bad guy yeah. and the good guy. You know, he's the, oh. the, the husband yeah. and the... He's been in a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's really rocking. He's uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I'm trying to think what but I first... But no, I don't watch Outlander. <laughs> I haven't watched him in a couple of years. I don't um, watch Outlander, but everything I see Tobias in is amazing. Um, but somehow... Yeah. It's going to drive me crazy what I first saw him in. Yeah, he's... Uh, I've watched only a few episodes of Outlander. Oh, I really um, liked him. He he's wonderful. I, I hear the show is wonderful, but I I don't actually watch a lot of television. Hmm. Um, you probably would have seen him in um, James Bond. Maybe he was in the he was in um, yes the one okay. with Ava Green. He played the Judy Dench's assistant. That's right. Yes. Okay. And then he was in most memorably, and to my mind, he was in the Honorable Woman series with Maggie Gyllenhaal last year. That was a remarkable. Hmm series um and he was he had a great part in that there is so much television oh it is exhausting like everyone oh he was on rome that's That's what i first knew that's right rome yeah and actually game of thrones as well yeah and an episode of black mirror i'm just seeing oh man oh really Um, wow i didn't know that yeah that's cool this guy's everywhere uh yeah yeah, he's very talented he's got his own amc show coming out called i want to say terror i think the terror okay yeah. Um, now it's funny I had to ask you before we recorded how to pronounce your name you mm-hmm, gave me a, mm-hmm. a, a menu to pronounce from <laughs> you just gave us this uh, weird pronunciation I have, I've been saying Tobias Menzies since Rome well he now says Tobias Menzies too but when I first met him which was like 25 years ago or like maybe not that much 20 years ago it was Mingus hmm um, I guess the more famous you get the more you're just like Whatever is yeah. easiest for the audience yeah. is the also, way to go. Menzies is a little more yeah. sounds a little better. But this seems to be is. like this, is, this seems to be the type of people you surround yourself with because the people in your movie are Mireille Enos, Mireille Enos, yeah, and Mireille French name Mireille, Mireille oh. Enos, and Goran Visnik. Goran Visnik. Goran Wait, Visnik. Visnik. And Sam Shepard. <laughs> it's all there. Yeah, we haven't talked about that. Yeah. Uh, I, that didn't even occur to me because I saw the movie back in June yeah. uh, when Sam Shepard was still with us. Uh, any any memories to share from uh, working with Sam Shepard? I have. I take lots of memories, you yeah. know, with me for sure. Um, he was a very g- gorge. He was truly a gorgeous person. Somebody said to me yesterday, "Oh, Sam Shepard, he was so beautiful." He was, the, an older man said to me, an older heterosexual man said to me, "Oh, Sam Shepard, he was so beautiful." And that really, he was mm-hmm. very beautiful. And I mean, I, physically, but just there was something about his spirit that was like a wild and brilliant and deeply dignified and just really rocking. He was a rocking guy. Was it? But again, you cast him mostly so you'd know how to pronounce one one name. One name. <laughs> right. All right, Sam. All right, it's not going to throw me, right? Um, is it? You know, because along with being a seasoned actor, he was also a playwright and mm-hmm. such. Um, was that intimidating uh, at oh all to God. direct someone well, the, who... <laughs> the biggest compliment I think I've ever gotten in my whole life, maybe, is he decided to take the role, and then he took he, he and his girlfriend took me out to dinner. And in the middle of dinner, he just turns to me and he says, well, you've written an extraordinary screenplay. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and I was just like... Whoa. Wow. You should have been on his podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, And then you're just like, ah, well, Sam, this is uncomfortable. You're fired. (laughs) But, wow, that's Uh, great. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to talk more about uh, uh, Never Here, um, and I'm excited for people to to see it. This is sometimes the fun thing about getting to be a critic is seeing something even though I'm you know semi-professional critic or whatever I have a regular job as well but getting mm-hmm. to see something four months before mm-hmm. it comes out and having all that time to look forward to people getting to see it um, there's a movie I saw last year's um, LA Film Fest that is just now coming out called Bloodstripe that's great that's my same producer oh really Radium Chung yeah he, he produced Never Here and he also produced Bloodstripe yeah wow yeah great track record <laughs> yeah but, I have a lot of producers and they're all amazing but Radium is one of them <laughs> Um, but before we get back to Never Here, I want to let's get to know you uh, for, for a second. I'll ask you the, the question I ask every guest. Where did you grow up? Manhattan. Yeah? Nice. What's that like? NYC. It was really normal <laughs> for me. <laughs> Manhattan in the 80s, it was really, in 90s, it was really dangerous. 
Like, I just thought it was normal to, hmm. we got robbed like six times. Somebody tried to ax down our front door because I wow. lived on the Upper East Side, which is now very nice. And it was nice then, but it was on 95th and 3rd, which was the, blo- the, the block that delineates the Upper East Side from Harlem, which now means nothing because Harlem is awesome now. But back in the day, it was more dangerous. So, yeah, when I visited New York, I, I got an Airbnb in Harlem. While. <laughs> when I visited New York, I, our Airbnb was in Harlem. So that's so there that's we go. The it's gorgeous. <laughs> kind of I mean, now. it was always yeah. gorgeous, but it, it, it was genuinely dangerous growing up in in, in that area. Was I mean, I just just became accustomed to yeah. danger around all the time. But it was awesome. It was great. It was exciting. It was you know. I don't know. I'm really normal for me. Hmm. Uh, and then, so you still live in New York? I live in Los live Angeles, yeah. Okay. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure if you were visiting. I flew in for the yeah. podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, you said you have a work thing later. So <laughs> she really liked that review. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, if Manhattan sounds very exciting. Um, how'd you get into movies? Why, why were you spending your time watching movies when you could have been, yeah. I don't know. That's a great question. But but my my father, who doesn't remember anything, like truly, I think if I saw him on the street out of context, like he wouldn't recognize me. <laughs> yeah, truly, he's really can be very uh, dreamy about certain things. He turned to me recently with a memory. He said, and I, I had the impression he doesn't really remember anything about my childhood. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, um, when you were three or four years old, we watched the Alamo in a hotel room together. And he remembered the hotel room and he was like, you just sat there and you watched it transfixed. And what's funny is I remember watching the Alamo and I remember being transfixed, but I didn't know who I was with. I didn't know. Wow. I was a totally unverified memory. I know what happened, Mm -hmm. but to have my father outwardly verify that I just sat there for two hours, like, whoa, at the age of three and a half or whatever, however old I was. That's great. Started early. Like that. yeah. That's just a sweet memory that I feel like I shouldn't mar it by making a remember, remember the Alamo joke. Um, but I went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> yeah, here we are. And I stumbled over the word remember. We all feel uh, a little bit dirtier yep. because you made it. So thanks for that. All right. Thanks. So oh, got that out of my system. Um, and then, so what's your history as a, as, as a filmmaker, as a, how did you get, how did you get to the um, point where you made this, uh, lovely movie? I, so I started directing plays, Unprofessionally, when I was like seven or eight, <laughs> with with my friends and my my little sister and her friends, and then we were also making little movies. Um, so I did it for my whole childhood, and I felt like, oh, of course I'm just going to keep doing it. Frankly, and then in college, did a few experimental films, got into theater for a while, did performance art in my twenties, um, and then started making short films, and then a documentary. The Longest Game, which your listeners, I would love it if your listeners would check out as well. What's that about? Where can people find it? The Longest Game is coming out um, also in February 2018 on PBS. Oh, cool. And it's about a group of charming men in their late 80s who meet every day at 1 p.m. and play paddle tennis. And they've been playing together for 25 years. Wow. And the film, much like Never Here, even though it's an uplifting documentary and not an unsettling thriller, Uh it really looks at cycles of change. Hmm. Um, Metamorphosis and change are things I always go back to. So they're they're really hilarious and funny, and the film also is quite poignant and um, really does look at life cycles and metamorphosis. How... uh, so I know that uh, we're supposed to be talking about uh, Never Here, but I'm, I'm curious. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated to talk to a documentary filmmaker because, especially when it's not like just a series of interviews, like you're actually watching, like a, you're, you're documenting, a, documenting, pardon me, a span of time. Like how long did you have to shoot The Longest Game? We shot for, two, I want to say two years. Two years. Oh my gosh. Because we were shooting in Dorset, Vermont, this very utterly picturesque village mm-hmm. very Grover uh, uh, like the ultimate Grover's Corners <laughs> like you if I took a snapshot of it you'd be like oh it's look it's Grover's Corners yeah um, and then we were living in Los Angeles me and the producer Elizabeth Ng Wong who then ended up being in it as well hmm. and she also produced Never Here 
Um, so we, we couldn't just spend every day with yeah. them. So we had to make these trips. So it took, it took about maybe like two, possibly even three years. And, you know, you hear these stories about yeah. what it takes from a directorial standpoint mm. to make any film, which mm-hmm. is like having your eye on the prize. Like, oh, okay, God. there's totally. like everything is such a process. And that's making a movie for a few months. You know, who makes a movie? For I don't a few know. Months. Theoretically, I, like someone probably them. did somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. But uh, let's say a year. Let's say a year. Um, who makes a movie for a year? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe somebody who has an unlimited budget. I don't That's know. Great. Um, That's great. But like, but to keep that goal in mind for two years, how much of it is like I know what I want, but also you sort of have to let the content dictate what mm-hmm. it's going to be. Like which of those kind of wins out or is it both? It's very much a balance. Yeah. I um I am big into letting the film talk to me and tell me what it's gonna be and mm-hmm. tell me what's right and what's not right. So yeah. and par- actually part of the longest game is that process for me I I document the process in the movie of how the movie is actually speaking to me and Mm. telling me film this and don't film this and some really interesting things happened that I wasn't conscious of when I was filming that then made sense in retrospect that I put I put together for the audience in the movie um you're an idiot if you're a filmmaker who isn't open mm-hmm. to what's right in front of you and the accidents and the things that you no. can't plan. You've got to be open to that. On the other hand, you have to have be integrity be in integrity with the inspiration that brought you to that place. Yeah. So it's really a balance. Now, with something like you described Never Here as a, as a thriller, um, which I would agree with, I also think it has some elements of horror uh, to it. Mm, when oh, you're... I like that you describe it like that. <laughs> it definitely does. I've, yeah. Cool. I, um, so cool. Uh, but I, when you're working in something that's closer to genre, then mm. doesn't, that, doesn't that require you as a director to impose more uh, on, on the film than let it talk to you? I, for instance, with Never Here, I could see 70% of the film in my head before we shot it. Mm-hmm. So I was, and I, and those are the bits that I was like, no, sorry, it can't be like that. It's got to be like that. No, 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 got to be exactly like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then for the bits that I couldn't see, then I'd be like, well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> no. I don't, what should we do here, guys? And so I don't know if that answers your question. But yeah. Def, I was definitely into staying in integrity with the image I had in my mind. That was super key. I, n- I never questioned those images. Right. Yeah. Uh, what I like about the movie, though, is uh, one of the many things I like about it is that it doesn't feel um, like uh, overly uh, deterministic. Like it, because mm-hmm. it's an ambiguous movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. You talked about metamorphosis. It's very much in this movie. I don't want to. I don't even want to say what Never Here is about. Not in terms of spoilers. In terms of like. I don't want to like try to define right. <laughs> define it because it is the the for the listeners at home so you can check it out the and uh, maybe one of the co-hosts okay. as well. <laughs> the basic premise <laughs> is that uh, uh, Maria Mireille Mireille Enos think of like a fillet is a um, <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, she's an artist she's sort of having an ongoing thing with her uh, uh, art. Manager, art, dealer, art dealer, art dealer yeah. Sam Shepard. So he's at her place. He he witnesses a crime out the window, but I guess doesn't want to go to the police himself, mm-hmm. seeing as he's with another woman. I guess at the time, yes, yes. And so she takes his account as her own and goes to the police and becomes the witness. Um, and sort of, but that's just the bare bones premise. It becomes about her losing her own sense of identity yes. over the course of it's like that this pretending to be someone she's not is just the the the, the ignition yeah, and, and totally. it, it becomes stranger and more and more indescribable and and <laughs> uh, it beca- it really like I, I if it almost feels like on my part it's a critic it feels like a hack comparison whenever you say something's lynchian like i feel like lynch and malik are like the two people that mm. you shouldn't go around <laughs> comparing people to but i did think of david lynch a lot it's been like i mean something like mulholland drive in which the characters literally change mm-hmm. you know uh, and it, this isn't as 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 sharp or defined as that but it made me think of that sort of mm. uh that that idea of the movie not letting you 
the movie not feeling like, like a safe place necessarily. That's fantastic feedback. That, that, that's what I wanted. I wanted it not to feel like a safe place. Like, what world are we in? Mm-hmm. Spe- specifically that it's not, it is Lynchian, like you say, but it goes back and forth between being quite real and quite surreal, mm-hmm. which, and the idea was to destabilize the viewer as the protagonist becomes more and more destabilized. So like, oh, here we are. We're in indie mumblecore. It's all good. We're good. Everything's yeah. good. And oh God, no, where are we now? So the idea that you said that the movie doesn't feel like a safe place is really, it's like, <laughs> that's why I'm here, David. <laughs> Apparently I'm the, the target, your target audience. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, I unfortunately did not get a chance to, uh, see the film. Um, but, uh, I watched, and now that David, now that you describe it to me, I remember when we did our LA film fest, uh, episode, episode yeah. I remember thinking like, that sounds great. Uh, and then I, wa- I did watch the trailer today and was, is there any, like you said, a bare bones jumping off point as far as the story goes, but that bare bones is very Hitchcockian. Like, yeah, very. Would you very, say that's a, an influence deeply, in there? Deeply, yeah. That's yeah. in more ways than one. The, that's the idea. That's the kind of the shape of it is very Hitchcock, mm-hmm. deliberately. And and there's a lot of tropes, a lot of yeah. like trench coats and <laughs> nice. dark hats. And uh, I mean, there's tons of, of noir genre tropes yeah. in there. So that's very much the the skeleton of the film. And then it has different kinds of colors from that. Yeah, it definitely sounds... Everything about it sounds like my kind of thing, just like, like Hitchcock, Lynch noir stuff and then like oh uh, identity oh that's fun I like that and this idea of like wanting to cover for somebody because you care about them but they might not be totally aware of what they're asking of you Um, and just that sounds so I don't know there's like a real I don't know, dark side of human nature element to that. And again, I haven't, I haven't seen the film by all accounts. It's great. (laughs) Thank you. David says it's really good. (laughs) um, But yeah. So, uh, so how did you, well, okay. I, I wonder, um, I wonder to proceed if, if we should proceed with this or go back a little bit because of this, you know, this film is influenced by by Hitchcock. There's some David mm-hmm. Lynch in there. Um, Polanski. Just, what was it? Polanski. Sure. Nicholas yes. Rogue is actually. I, oh, I would, yeah. Nicholas Rogue is actually my primary influence. Okay. Polanski, I love Polanski, but I don't have a Polanski movie that I've seen like ten times. Hmm. Nor David Lynch. I, I love David Lynch. I, I mean, it thrills me that you compare our movie to David Lynch, but. Um, the, really the filmmaker whose work I've studied and like really loved I've seen Don't Look Now 30 times probably mm. is Nicholas Rogue interesting I think that yeah. uh, actually speaks to what I because I said it had horror elements but maybe that just speaks more to what sort of things tend to scare me mm-hmm. because Don't Look Now is a very scary movie yet to it me is, yeah. and a lot of David Lynch movies like Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway which are not horror movies uh, really really freak me out and yeah. so uh, maybe that's what I'm speaking to uh, yeah. this the, the 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 not knowing what's necessarily mm-hmm. either literally or sort of metaphysically three feet ahead of you in the darkness it's is freaky is, yeah I mean you talked about losing losing the idea of losing one's identity to me what is more scary than that it's yeah. very terrifying so. Um, I'm sure it'd be liberating for a little while. I'm just like, well, I'm not thrilled well, with it me. Is. <laughs> but, it's uh, totally yeah. liberating. I mean, so the documentary, The Longest Game, is also about, mm-hmm. in a way, about how nothing we think of as fixed is actually fixed. And right. it really looks at the redemptive beauty of that. So it doesn't have to be terrifying. It, yeah. it is actually, the it in my mind, it's just reality. Yeah. And it's both terrifying and deeply gorgeous. But And in Never Here, it's looked at through the lens of a thriller. So it's meant yeah. to unsettle us as, a view, as viewers. Unsettling is, I think, a, a great word for certain types of movies. Because David and I have talked about this before, that like there are movies that aren't and even even like older films, like those, like the, the Universal the horror films of the thirties, we look at them now and they're not scary. Mm. It's like, and while horror is usually identified with scary, it's like, yeah, but they weren't called scary movies at the time. They were called horror movies. And people admittedly were, did find them frightening. But to me, it's like horrific 
doesn't necessarily have to be overtly scary. Mm. It can be unsettling. Mm. And, you know, in the same way that something like, you know, to bring up Mulholland Drive again, um, yeah, it's not a horror movie, Mm. but I guarantee like people will walk at, would walk out of that film so much more unnerved yeah. and unsettled than a much more overt and straightforward horror film which you know frightens you in the moment and then you just go home but i feel like movies that are truly unsettling stay with you for a while whether you want them to or not yeah. um and that's something that i that i like but also i don't like cuz who likes to feel like that um but uh what i was going to ask is just in general, as a, uh, I mean, obviously you were heavily influenced by the Alamo. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's clear. But what other uh, films and what other directors have influenced you, not merely in, in this film, but mm. just in your career in general? Uh, like who am I a fan of, basically? Yeah. I'm a big fan of Olivier Assayas. Okay. Oh, yeah. Like pre-Carlos. Okay. Like okay. He, he got yeah. big with Carlos in the United States, mm-hmm. but I remember seeing Demon Lover in a theater by myself mm-hmm. in, like, 2000. Yeah. And, like, making, like, grunting, going like, ugh, uh, uh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then I came out of the theater, and I was like, what the hell was that? And I looked up the reviews, and the and the reviewers were like, ah, this is so average. And I was like, oh, my no, God, so no, it's freaking amazing. <laughs> but the original music by Sonic Youth. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I'm, I'm a fan of Olivier Assayas as, as well, definitely. Irma Vep was a... Irma Vep. Yeah. I mean, that is vibrant cinema. Yeah. It's so good. He made Clean, right? Yeah, he made Clean. Which I was a big fan I of. I also love Clean, yeah. yeah. Boarding Gate is really great, even though it's very B. It's like one. crap, but it's so good. <laughs> okay. It's, I mean, everything, Summer Hours... Cloud of Sils Maria, I guess. I haven't yeah. seen Personal Shopper. Well, but. I was going to Personal Shopper is, I think, the best movie since There Will Be Blood. That's what I've been saying since I saw Personal Shopper. Wow. It, that, it, uh, yeah, it, the movie shook me to my core. Wow, I yeah. have to see it. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, mm-hmm. But again, it's uh, I like I seem to really like movies that aren't actually horror movies but have mm-hmm. horror in them because mm-hmm. Personal Shopper has some stuff that like gave me chills. Mm-hmm. I mean, it literally is a ghost story in a lot no. of ways. I don't know if you know the premise, mm-hmm. but um, I do, yeah. Uh, yeah, apparently this is this is I'm I'm uncovering something about myself and talking about these horror movies that aren't really horror movies. Um, but then the last question on that actually something I wanted to bring up: um, you weren't overtly making a horror movie with never here but uh, and maybe this is just like a critical sort of projecting onto a movie but i did feel like the thing with the just the whole subplot with her dog almost felt like a sort of metatextual like a comment on the pet in peril trope mm. of horror movies because even that ends up playing out in a different way than you would expect from a mm. horror movie in never here mm. but uh i guess that wasn't intentional and i <laughs> well how, how how do you how do you how does it normally play out uh, well, I think, well, I reread my own review today, um, and so I'm going to re- reuse the term that I use, which is that a lot of Such times... navel-gazing. <laughs> a lot of times <laughs> in horror movies, pets seem to be, are almost like the canary in a coal mine. Oh, yeah, it's true. Where, like, yeah. the, they're threatened or something happens yeah. to them as a sort of an they, omen. They're smart. They know. They yeah. know what's going on before the humans do. Yeah. yeah. Or it's like a, a, a way to raise the stakes before people die. And just like... It's true. The, it's, yeah. The, the pet knows something's up, and so right. does the kid. Right. And the adults are like, what? Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, I just wanted to ask you about the, <laughs> the horror the thing. We, we get on this horror, uh, the horror thing. Yeah, so what is a dog? Uh, I'm not going to ask you what your movie means. That would be uh, base. <laughs> but, uh, Although, well, you know what? Here's, okay, I'm sorry. I apologize. You didn't come it? on here to listen to me bitch and moan. And yet here we are. Um, <laughs> So I saw the movie Mother, which, while not officially a horror film, is definitely what the studio wanted it to be. Um, oh, that's yeah. certainly how they marketed it. Totally. Um, it's not officially a horror movie, it's but not. boy, it's horrific in yeah. a lot of ways and very unnerving. Mm-hmm. Um, Darren Aronofsky will not shut up about it. Like he just he he does like Q and A after Q and A, like saying exactly what he was trying to do with it. And I'd be like, man. Do you not realize the movie you made and just how open it is to certain interpretations? Just let it be that. Like, it bothers me a lot. But huh. I'm ask you this. You are a director, mm-hmm. and undoubtedly I'm sure that you have things you're trying to get across mm-hmm. with your films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it frustrating when you, 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 know, you read something somebody wrote or you hear something that somebody said and you're like, this person couldn't be further from what I was trying to do? And do you, do you fight the urge to say no, as David was saying, this is what my film was about? <laughs> 
Um, well, my film is so much about in- interpretation mm-hmm. and how objective reality is a construct yeah. of uh, based on our own interpretations that I actually gives me pleasure when people and, and because everybody who sees it actually has a different idea of what's what's happened hmm. everybody oh. like it's amazing and it's 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 very satisfying actually to somebody say no 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 this no 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 it was this no it was this because it took a lot of work to actually because I it was it's not by de- it's, it is by design I um I didn't just throw it out there right. and say hey whatever you guys think it was like okay this I really like traced it back. Yeah. You could look at it like that, and you could look at it like this, and this could mean this, and this could mean this. So uh, it's, it was very much a puzzle for people to put together, but it yeah. was a very designed puzzle. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't like it when people are um, don't see that. Somebody said to me once, like, "Well, you can't, you you have to, you you know, you can't just make a movie about interpretation," and that pissed me off. Mm-hmm. Sure and then they said, they said, Christopher Nolan, he knew <laughs> with Inception, he knew with the turning thing at the end what that meant. So this like, person <laughs> that you, yeah, I noticed you didn't use the word friend. No, is that, uh, he wasn't correct? a friend. Yeah, okay, yeah. good. <laughs> he, was just a, he was an irate viewer. Well, there's a lot of those around. Yeah. And yeah, then those people tend to like... Uh, Christopher Nolan movies. Anyway. Hey, I like Christopher Nolan movies. I don't tend to like his I love Dunkirk. It's um, great. I haven't seen Dunkirk I'm yet. seeing it Freaking tomorrow great. for the first time. It's <laughs> really good. Okay, yeah. I, that's what it's, I hear. It's good. Um, in fact, uh, <laughs> the person who won't stop telling me to see it is uh, uh, our mutual friend Joshua Youngerman, who's <laughs> apparently an uncredited <laughs> in, in, or bar in patron. In Never Here. In Never Here. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to IMDb, I haven't asked him about mm-hmm. that. But, you know, uh, but he will once he hears this, he will text me. One of our cool. one of our uh, collective because we just think the same now, David and I. Um, <laughs> one of our problems with Inception is actually the what, David. I won't speak for you. For me, a lack of ambiguity. Like mm. we're dealing with dreams, and yet it's surprisingly literal mm. and and very straightforward. Mm. And that's something that actually bothers mm. me a lot. Right. And same with Interstellar. You could, yeah. You could level the same criticism. Yeah. yeah. And that's something you know he's dealing with like metaphysical stuff. And I yeah. like that there's some interpretation, but he also just comes out and just has people explain it. Like yeah. It's like Christopher Nolan. You're you're a fantastic director, mm. and you're probably a pretty good story by guy. Mm-hmm. Screenplay by maybe is not your uh, ideal credit. Uh, mm. I feel like let his brother take stuff. But take he's it trying over. to reach a lot of people. He is That's the thing. So yeah. you know, he he wants billions of people to see his yeah. films. So he's got to do a little bit of explaining. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to make films on that budget level. Yeah. On the flip side, you know. Uh, a movie that I that I do love in a lot of ways is the new Blade Runner, and I like that for the most part it really does not compromise, and it's not good, doing great. So you <laughs> I know. haven't seen it. I haven't yeah. seen it, so I, I can't pre- I can't comment. Pretty solid. Well, now that we're on this topic of the practicalities of the practicalities of making films, um, how do you? We, we mentioned your great cast. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I pronounced some of their names. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, how did you come by getting this uh, the this cast of actors? Um, Mireille and I did a short film together 10 years ago and um, this is before she became famous mm-hmm. and then we then we became friends so I actually wrote the part of Miranda for her uh, and named Miranda kind of like nudge nudge <laughs> wink wink please please do my movie uh-huh. um, and it looked for many years like she wasn't going to be able to play Miranda mm-hmm. But she like she she read the script and she gave me her thoughts and um, she was in various ways a support for a lot of years and she put me in touch with actually her friend Greg Ainsworth who became an executive producer put me in touch with Neil Dotson and Zachary Quinto their company before the door pictures and we had this remarkable meeting in 2011 Greg and I we were just like. Oh, Went, went went to meet with them and like it was very clear very quickly that there was a lot of chemistry there and um, they were like well great <laughs> like and then they saw The Longest Game which was already in process they saw my short that I'd made with Mary they were like great alright we're going to be your godfathers hmm. basically mm-hmm. you know we're not going to finance it for you but we're going to give you access and this is in 2011, mm-hmm. and uh, we I, and I had a lot of other producers come along, c- come into. I, I have the most amazing team of producers that any filmmaker has ever had. 
it's really truly remarkable everybody that does their job everybody works with everybody else but Neil and Zach and Corey Musa, who became a full producer on the movie they provided they got us they got the script to CAA and CAA got it to their clients and at some point we had a like a really big actress attached a household name that fell apart um, but basically that's that's how that's how that happened I had a question that's uh, probably pretty ignorant of me when it comes to industry stuff. Um, when you have like multiple producers mm. who are it's usually disastrous. All, I was going to yeah. ask like, how is that's it? Because they're all from different places. Yeah. They all are trying to do their own thing, and and you know, how is it possible that they work yeah. so well it's together? Just, it's, it's a miracle. Yeah, because normally when you have fourteen producers on a film, it's. There's almost always an asshole, at least one, if not yeah. 13, sure. <laughs> you know? And um, in this case, it just was nothing short of miraculous. Everybody has done a stellar job and been working consistently on this little movie for yeah. since 2011 for, I don't want to say how much money. It's like embarrassing. <laughs> um, it's just really been, it's this very passionate, dedicated people. Yeah. Really incredible. Yeah, that's the great thing about a producer versus a studio. Not, and of course, studios are important as well. But like a producer, someone who actually is close enough to the artistic they vision that they, they actually want to see it carried out. Yeah, totally. It's there's a lot of care. Navigate the waters of the studio bureaucracy. I interned for a couple of producers once, and so I was, I was listening. Harvey Weinstein. Okay. <laughs> did you intern for Harvey? You did. I did. No, oh no, my god! Oh. No, 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 <laughs> no. Um, it's. Uh, a guy named Don Murphy. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, hmm, you'd think I'd remember the other guy's name. Gary. Gary. Director, Gary, Gary Ross. <laughs> Gary Ross, thank ah. you. The director of Seabiscuit and other uh, pretty uh, big yeah, movies. Yeah. You'd think I'd remember his name, but I kept wanting to say, like, uh, Gary Owens. Like, no, that's the narrator from Na- uh, from Laugh-In. Um, Gary Brokoff, yeah. no. That's, Gary, that's right, Radar, right. Riley. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, it's it's very it was very interesting because one of my jobs is to listen in on on calls, like wow. and just to hear like the producer talk to studio people. It's like there's a definite tonal sh- difference between the two of them. Like one of them is he's still using corporate speak, but it's very much in favor of the film, and mm. then the other is very much in favor of how are we going to do the best on it? And it was really, it's really, really mm, interesting. That is interesting. So, really and so, interesting. and that was just one, like mm. 14 of them trying mm. to do this thing is, is crazy to well, me. Well, we had no studio that we were oh, talking right. to. That's, maybe that's, but we had investors and, no. you know, banks and all that stuff, the cast and there's publicists <laughs> and, you know, the distributors, all that stuff. So I'm sure this is a frustrating question since Never Here hasn't even come out, but uh, you working on anything else? What's, what's coming up next? What's that? Yeah, I'm writing a horror film. Oh, nice. awesome. Yeah, a full, like, full genre. <laughs> I don't have a dog in it right now, okay. but I am thinking about it, actually having another dog. <laughs> and something really cool would happen to the dog if I decide to include it, but I don't know if it'll be in this story. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's because it, Never Here, for those of us who haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I was, I'm going to school right now. I can't be seeing movies right and left. Um, is it, you know you describe it as a genre film, David, but it's not. It's it also yeah. it also kind of is and it isn't. So the movie I'm working on at the moment is speaking of reaching more people mm. is f- pretty full genre. That's very exciting. So, uh, yeah. Horror right now, like like young American indie horror is. So great. Yeah, it's such a yeah. great fertile ground for I so know, much stuff. I know. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm kind of scared. Like what happens if somebody else comes along before I get mine made and like they have, they have my idea. Yeah. I'm freaked out. Well, well there's not that many original ideas in horror. <laughs> so I think you could probably, do, as I, long as you do yours better. I think that's what freaks me out. Like yeah. I'm like, I, cause I, I feel like my, my script is pretty original and I'm just like, gosh, it wouldn't take much for somebody to just think this up as well it's about this thing called a babadook now listen listen <laughs> hear me out um and actually that reminds me th- speaking of the babadook my favorite movie of uh, 2014 um it's good yeah it is uh first off i apologize if it sounds insulting to say yeah. to like 
to ask you a question as a female filmmaker, of course, mm-hmm. you're not representing mm-hmm. all women, just mm-hmm. yourself, but, um, but it is interesting, especially in horror, to get a female perspective because we've gotten very used to the male perspective, mm. despite there often being a female protagonist. Mm. Um, do you, you know, do you feel? Uh, and if you listen to, sorry, if you listen to like interviews with like Jennifer Kent, who made The Babadook, like she said, she specifically wanted not merely a female point of view, but a mother's point mm. of view. And you know, as you, whether it be make this upcoming horror film or a thriller or whatever it is. Um, do you feel like I need to, I need to put like a woman's perspective on this or is it just, I'm going to put my perspective on it and it'll probably work itself out. Well, my perspective is a woman's perspective. So in, in the horror film, for instance, it's very, there's a lot of female horror I've seen from a female perspective because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of sexual stuff. Right. Um, but like, there's another movie I want to make. I have this. I want to remake Frantic. Oh yeah. And I want to do it in Beijing. This is this idea I have. But like, or like a version of Frantic. Either like get the get the rights, or I don't. I don't even know how one would go about remaking a Polanski classic. No. <laughs> um, but either it's either like very loosely based. Mm-hmm. Because it's got a different ending, my 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 version, and that is like all about in my at least this thing I have in my head. It's totally not doesn't feel like it's particularly gendered. The main character is male. Right. There's a wife who disappears. Um, there's a brother character. I'm thinking a lot about the brothers, not in the actual movie Frantic, but in the Frantic in my head, which mm-hmm. maybe isn't Frantic at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess it depends on the project. Yeah. But I, I would love to do a male protagonist. I often think of male characters and male protagonists. Interesting. And I love war movies. I love the Alamo. Like, yeah. I don't, I, I don't um, necessarily always focus on female protagonists, but so far have always written them. Hmm. Yeah. Did you see the 2000, was it 2004, John Lee Hancock, the Alamo? No, I it's didn't. It's pretty good. Really? It's kind of great, actually. Yeah, it's underrated. It is underrated. Huh. People yeah. don't talk about it enough, and when they do, they say, like, oh, it's fine. But it's a really, really effective film. Oh, cool. Um, I've never seen the original, though, or oh. the, the John Wayne version. I have. So That's, I'm sure it's probably pretty I, good. I remember it fondly. <laughs> I, I never saw it again. Oh, interesting. But I remember it so vividly. Are you afraid to see it again? That was maybe my question. Oh, I'm sorry, David. <laughs> no. no, I really want to see it again. Yeah. I, wanna, I really want to see it again. All right. So when we're done recording, all three of us will watch oh, the watch Alamo. It. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll still make it to your event on that day. Watch the three hour and 25 minute, whatever it is, uh, the Alamo. Uh, well, this has been uh, a, a delight. Um, oh, wow. Are I, we done? Uh, well, yeah, I know. We, we, we had a hard out. This is going to be a little oh, shorter right. than our normal, normal episodes, but that's, that's, right. that's fine. We got mm. kind of a late start because... Camille, you showed up at a time when things were like suddenly very frantic here at Tyler's house. Speaking of frantic, yeah. Yeah, speaking of frantic. Yeah. Uh, right. So yeah, it's not usually, we're usually a little more professional than that sort of uh, mad dash of uh, what the hell is going on that happened when you showed up. But I didn't even notice. Uh, okay. And I hope, hopefully the listeners haven't noticed. You guys are hard on yourselves. Uh, well, that's the only way you keep doing a podcast for 10 years or yeah. maybe you just don't stop. <laughs> yeah. You just keep going. And, uh, I mean, you know, yeah, be hard on yourself and everything will turn out fine. Right? You know, that's actually the subject of my horror film. Really? For real. Basically it's like, it's basically not, I, mean, I want to say something really vague, not to give very much away, but it's basically like, don't hate yourself. You're really going to fuck yourself up. Hmm. Like, huh. It's the it's that's the moral of the story that I want people to leave with. Like, oh shit, I really have to love myself hard. Mm. That's that's an exciting takeaway for a horror movie. Love myself hard, hard, like hard. You have to like, you can't just like love yourself. You have to like, you gotta like, you have to fight for yourself. You have to fight yourself and like really like. That sounds great. Like like militaristic. I'm a big fan of of like horror movies or or thrillers where. and I guess Cronenberg has done this a little bit, like with Spider, um, where the horror is very much from inside the person and they, mm. uh, they're they generating it themselves, whether they mean to or not. Mm. Um, that kind of thing really appeals to me for a mm. number of reasons. I guess I have to see Spider. Oh, it's... Oh, it's I mean, it's it's more of a drama, I would say, but it, mm. is, it is unsettling in a I'm, number of I'm ways. I'm sure it's David Cronenberg. Yeah. Um, huh, cool. Well, yeah, we should wrap up because the only other place we have to go is you mentioned Harvey Weinstein, and I was like, well, we could talk about that for an hour. But um, yeah, 
No, uh, I don't know. Pretty we will interesting t- one. We will have to address it on the show at some point. We talked at length about the Fantastic Fast Alamo Drafthouse Devin Faraci thing, and that was yeah. even before the Harry Knowles thing came out. There's clearly something going on. There's a problem in the culture in general, yeah. but yeah. I think there's something particularly rotten, I think, in the film world where I think people, and Harvey Weinstein's a great example, yeah. because they hide behind liberalism and yeah. big donations and stuff that they... Did that, you read his that, statement? Uh, no, I, I, I refuse. <laughs> I'm sorry. The, the one where he says, I'm going to donate the... the, the Anticipating the this, to... I did look it up. The last paragraph... I'm sorry, I know we have to no, go, no, we, we, no, we, have, have, we have a few minutes. We have a few minutes, yeah. <laughs> um, this... I mean, it is, uh, it's astonishing. And of course, a lot of my fellow conservatives are jumping on it. It's like, there's so many, so much more than just pure politics going on here. Come on. Um, his, he released a statement via the New, the New York times. And the last paragraph is because he talks about being angry. Okay. Uh, oh. <laughs> poor guy. Um, I'm going to need a place to channel that anger. So I've decided that I'm going to give the NRA my full attention. Yeah, yeah. I hope Wayne LaPierre, who's the president of the NRA, I believe. Yeah, um, sure. I'm going to, I, I hope Wayne LaPierre, sorry. I hope Wayne <laughs> LaPierre will enjoy his retirement party. I'm going to do it at the same place. I had my bar mitzvah. I'm making a movie about our president. Perhaps we can make it a joint retirement party. One year ago, I began organizing a $55 million foundation to give scholarships to women directors at USC. Which they've rejected. Yes. <laughs> you know, part of me is like, well, 50, it's a lot but of you money. Know, I, I thought about spends. it. I thought about it. And I was, I had the same thought and then I thought, uh-huh. no, like I, I, I personally, like couldn't yeah. take that money. I just couldn't do it. Especially because like, there's sort of this idea. It's like, okay, I've given you money, you've taken it, so at least you're going to see me a little bit better, right? And it's like, eh, not at the moment. And then he says, uh, so he talks about this scholarship thing, and then he says, while this might seem coincidental, it has been in the works for a year. It will be named after my mom, and I won't disappoint her. Now, first off, he bounces around a lot in that uh, paragraph, but it really is, like, it, it lets you know that, like, what are the okay? What can I cling to to make myself yeah, seem totally, like a good guy? Totally. And it's just and it's a very a very easy thing. Now, this is not this is not necessarily for David or the listener. This is for you. Despite considering myself a political uh, conservative, I do have a deep distaste for Donald Trump and the direction the Republican mm, Party is mm. going right now. But uh, but putting that aside, I will say that like everything about that statement like just seemed so like. Like Trump, Trump, he's bad too, right? And guns, uh, don't look at me. (laughs) And it just seemed like, ugh. And and so, sorry. All that is to say, it actually seems very Trumpian to be. It's it's almost like, yeah, yeah, Yeah. Uh, deflecting to something that he he thinks makes him look good. Anyway, sorry, that was Tyler, the conservative, and I I am a liberal. I have to say, for Mm. for the record. (laughs) Um, uh, anyway, we've spoken. Do you have anything you want to yeah. uh, uh, say about this old situation? You seem to be maybe one of the only people that made it out uh, without being uh, harassed by uh, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein. So good yeah, for you. Yeah, I never met Harvey Weinstein, so yeah. Um, I mean, it's. I, I have to say, I, I, this is going to sound crazy, but I, I'm like relieved that people are taking it seriously. I've known about Harvey Weinstein before I was even in the industry. Yeah. And it was such a fact, like, oh, this is what happens, that it never occurred to me that there would be an uproar and, like, even an investigation. I mean, to me, it's really, it's like, I had the same response with Trump with his tape. Mm-hmm. I was, like, so surprised that there was an uproar because I was like, well, yeah, we yeah. already know he's like that. And then just to see, oh, people really do care is to me is relieving to my system that oh okay maybe we're going to see change that I honestly hadn't even thought it wasn't even on my radar that this no. could change so do you think maybe this is me jumping jumping to conclusions or, or drawing lines that aren't there but do you think the fact that despite the uproar Donald Trump still became president has made people more fervent in the uproar like we have to catch this thing we have to catch these things now we have to stand up we have to keep uh, these sort of men from yeah, coming to power. I do. I, I feel like Hillary Clinton's candidacy was a win-win in that respect. Because if she'd become president, who knows what would have happened to gender dynamics in the country and globally. I'm sure we would have seen a lot of progress. But 
her defeat and the way she was defeated and who she was defeated by, I think it really woke a lot of people up to the reality of gender bias, that, that it's yeah. it's not something that we can shove under the rug anymore, and it's actually something that needs to be looked at for all of us, for our common humanity. Um, so I do, I feel without Hillary Clinton's loss, the Women's March wouldn't have happened, and I don't think this would be coming up in the way that it has. I feel like these are all uh, results of, of, in a way, the Trump presidency. There's this element, because it was such a surprise, like everybody, including every conservative I know, uh, everyone's just like, well, obviously Hillary's going to win, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then when that didn't happen, mm-hmm. um, everyone's like, okay, this is a shock, so what can we... So maybe let's start heading stuff off at the past, because who knows... If that hadn't happened, maybe there'd be a President Harvey Weinstein in like 10 years or right. something. Right, yeah. yeah. And you say everyone said that, and unfortunately a lot of sitting GOP congressmen are not behaving that way. Sure, They sure. are trying to continue, conduct business as normal yeah. and I think uh, selling their souls a little bit more every day. Um, and I am glad that I am glad that people are fleeing from Harvey Weinstein. Like there is Me no, too. There are no defenders. I'm glad too. So. I'm really glad. Yeah, that's I get. Cool. I, I was flabbergasted at any like conservative like except for Donna Karen. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear. About you that. guys didn't hear about that? No, I guess not. Oh, Donna Karen, randomly, Donna Karen of all people, she was like, "Oh, but no, um, you know, women have to be so careful how they present themselves and they sexualize themselves." And yeah, Donna Karen. Wow. Who designs clothes for, for women? Right. Wow. Very, and she's she's really screwed up her business. There are a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm not going to buy anything from Donna Karen. Not that there were many people buying anything from Donna Karen anymore anyway, but. Oh, I don't follow that. Uh, (laughs) That was probably Donna Karen stock. Um, I don't think it was doing too well. Does she sell men's t-shirts at Target? Because that's the end (laughs) of my fashion sense. Oh, well, she might actually. Okay. Who knows? Yeah. but I was gonna. The one thing I wanted to say was uh, I was kind of laughing at some of the conservative like Twitter uh, culture critics or whatever who were so quick to say like, "Are are liberals gonna condemn Harvey Weinstein?" <laughs> it's like check out a li- yeah. my liberal Twitter feed. Like yeah. you misunderstand liberals. Yeah. We police ourselves first. <laughs> like, yeah. But it's interesting because with this woman Amba Ambra Gutierrez, I guess that's how you pronounce her last name, the woman who. Have you guys heard the wire recording? I, again, I, I can't bring myself. She, she to was it. she was the only one who had the guts at the time to. She went right to the police. Something happened between them. Mm. She went right to the police. The police said, "Okay, wear a wire and go and go back to him and and um, basically get him to admit what he did." Which she did. Which he did on on the wire. He's like, "All right, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. I'm used yeah. to it." He, that's what he said. I'm used. She said, "Why did you touch my breast?" He said, "I'm used to that." Like, um, well, that's. But what then, about other people? then the police didn't move forward, and yeah. then the media made her name mud. Like it's that's the most nauseating yeah. part of all this. And this was just a couple of years ago. So the other side of like oh, everybody denouncing Harvey Weinstein is Page Six and the New York yeah. Post. She was on the cover of the New York Post, and she was called like the grope the gropey, hmm. and she was a, like a, a picture of her in a bikini, hmm. and they it's they really made her seem like a scumbag and. Yeah, and then really. you hear stuff like Ronan Ronan Farrow is like going to report on this like not not exactly a year ago but yeah. many months ago yeah, and like 10 months, 10 and months. MSNBC like killed it. And it's just like it's like, it's so, like I mean you do almost get the impression cuz I've read a few I've read a few uh, editorials by like Hollywood writers and stuff like that and they said that like maybe one of the reasons people are so quick to denounce right now is because it took them so long to do it. Uh, yeah, like it was a very open like secret. And so it's like, if I, if I jump on this, like I'm going to jump on this bandwagon now. So nobody ever looks at me and says, Hey, why didn't you do this earlier? Um, which is a little bit cynical, but at the same time, like, uh, I don't know, but it, it yeah. is, I didn't know that that was like an open secret in Hollywood. Like, I mean, yeah. obviously Harvey Weinstein was kind of a blowhard and a scumbag, but I don't think I knew that it was quite to that level. And the fact that so many people seem to, yeah. um, but he has power. I don't and, think anybody knew he was physically raping women. Cause that's the other thing right. that's come up recently. The last few days is that like forced vaginal <sighs> sex Ugh. like that. That's that. I, I mean, no, I wouldn't have had no idea about that. Wow. 
It was just more the kind of scummy stuff that, that I had gotten wind of. Yeah. But isn't some of it, we need to wrap up, but yeah. <laughs> there is some, um, and not that I don't want to sound like an apologist, but some, some of the people who know, who knew and didn't say anything, to some extent, isn't that about like, well, I know because someone I know was assaulted sure. and she doesn't want to come forward. Right. And so I'm keeping that secret. It's also that- terrifying. I mean, yeah. if I, if I had been in that situation, I don't know that I would have said anything because I've worked my ass off. Oh. In this industry, and I, I to be the sole person who comes forward against a giant like that. I mean, it's when you hear about stories being, you know, swept under the carpet, and you're like, okay, well, clearly he. If it's just me by myself, he'll win. Yeah. And now I'm and I and I'm ruined. You know, yeah. it's a it's a very and you know a, a number of the articles that I've read talk about how like this is. There really does seem to be like in, in a lot of these stories, um, though it's hard to believe that somebody like Devin Faraci could be seen as having any kind of power. But like the 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 insulation that comes with like feeling you have power and knowing that they'll believe me if mm. this person even says anything, which they probably won't. Mm. Um, well, it's just very the the internet makes uh, allows everyone to find everyone who's like them, and therefore mm-hmm. it, it creates niches, and then and so therefore there become these fiefdoms, and so people mm-hmm. like uh, Devin Frotch or Harry Knowles, and now this week there, there's the guy from Screen Junkies, which uh, oh that's new to me. Yeah, yeah I can't remember who's his that? name. Oh. I had, I literally just learned that Screen Junkies and Cinema Sins are two different things, so I can't uh, <laughs> I can't tell you the name of the They're guy. They're both from pretty Junkies. worthless for the most part. But, <laughs> but like Screen Junkies, I guess has a lot of like, YouTube channels, and there were things that come out about him telling like like underage girls like oh i could make you a youtube star if you dress like this if you show me your tits mm-hmm. whatever that kind of stuff uh-huh. um I also that's really low stakes like like this thing that like we're all in the movie world we barely even know what screen junkies is but yeah. to enough people there's power there mm. that he was able to 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 wield that i'm so sorry that this is how your episode is ending no well it's a, it's a reality i'm i like that people are talking about it no. and it, i love that men the for the for the most part men's response is to say like ew gross yeah it's it's it feels great yeah, it's, it's a, not uh, i not, didn't not know necessarily talk. that that, yeah. that would be the case uh, certainly 10 years ago you know it, I could tell you some stories for sure, um, and so it's, it's to me it's great that people are talking about it, and and everybody everybody agrees. Yeah, it is of course horrifying to hear these stories, but at the same time, the fact that you're hearing them so it okay, like when I watch all the president's men, mm-hmm. or even something like Spotlight, and just like and any time the characters like uncover this new piece of information. Like it's kind of invigorating because it's always invigorating to find out the truth, mm. even if the truth is horrible. Mm. And so it's like, it's being brought to light. And if something is out there in the light, like it can't, exactly. it can't continue. Exactly. And so with every new person coming forward, back like, to my I'm, horror film again, there, yeah. there we go. Oh, oh. Well, now we, <laughs> well, there we, go. Go. <laughs> so we have to wrap it up uh, real quick. Of course you can find me and Tyler at uh, battleship That's where you can find those all sorts of, of stuff, including my review of never here, which I'll, I'll remember to repost uh, when it, uh, well, the, the week the movie comes out. Um, and uh, you can email us uh, Dave, uh, sorry, David at battleship You can email me if you have any uh, questions for our video mailbag segment, Ask BP, which we do every once in a while. Uh, you can email Tyler at Tyler at BattleshipPretension.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Tyler's on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Uh, real quick, anything going on in your other podcast? More than one lesson? We're in the midst of Halloween times, and so uh, this week Josh and I talk about Nicholas Winding Reference, The Neon Demon. Mm, okay. Yeah. Great. Um, that's a fun movie. Uh, um, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but <laughs> I do enjoy yeah. that movie. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that's where you can find us. Camille, where can people find you on the internet? Um, on the internet. Uh, well, my, well, I don't want to, my you to give out your address or anything. My, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my film Never Here opens October twentieth, twenty six. Come watch it on demand or see it in the theaters. Enjoy it. All right. Thanks um, for being for for having me, guys. It was really so much nice. For coming. This it was great. really really fun. You know, on Twitter, are you on Twitter? Oh God! I, yeah, like I think I am. I think I am. I think it's Camille Toman. Okay. Well, <laughs> Instagram Camille Toman. T H O M A N. Twitter Camille. Thank you. Thank you for this. Yeah. There we go. What else? What else do we have? Snapchat. Snapchat. Are you on LinkedIn? LinkedIn. Yes. <laughs> um, also Camille Toman. T H O M A N. What is uh, Foursquare? 
Sure. <laughs> Is that still I, around? That's where I stopped. Twitter, <laughs> Instagram, and LinkedIn. Yeah. There you go. T-H-O-M-A-N. C-A-M-I-L-L-E. Probably an underscore. <laughs> that stands oh, yeah. to reason. Yeah. <laughs> thank you again for coming. This was fun. It was really Indeed. fun. Yeah. And thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye, Bye guys. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 